All right, so uh, we are in the middle of a series, uh, Membership Matters, um, and, and really what this is need, needed to be and is, is really like a five weeks on, like, what is the church? You know, I feel like, you know, there's never really a time where we talk about formally, like, what is the church? What, what, what is this thing? And so really that's kind of functionally what we're doing. And so a little more teachy than preachy, uh, uh, but I think this is a needed thing because we don't get to talk about this a lot. Um, so our elders have written a new church covenant that we are going, that I'm preaching through and that we are proposing to you to be adopted at our next members meeting. Uh, so I'm preaching through that covenant so that we're all on the same page about like what this is, uh, so that after adopting it, hopefully uh, here in you know m- month or so, uh, it will be something that stays before us, that we strive for, uh, that we keep in front of us all, at all times. Uh, and so if our doctrinal statement uh, tells us what we must believe to be a member, then our church covenant tells us how we ought to live. Before God and each other to be a member. Uh, so, kind of a quick recap. In week one, uh, we looked at the basis for our covenanting together, meaning that we have to have the same anchor that we're rooted in the gospel. We have to have the same aim that we glorify God, the same attitude of joy in the Lord, and the same authority of the scriptures. And week two, we looked at the church as family and how we as now we're now siblings and how we ought to live toward one another by obeying what we call the one another passages, living out these one another's toward each other by, and by fighting for unity and even bringing value because you have value but also you bring value because God has wired you and gifted you a certain way and so you bring those gifts uniquely to our church. And we said we are less off as a body if we don't have the gifts that you bring toward us. And so you're one part but we're all, t- all uh, you know, one body. Today... I want to look at what is the life of the church look like? What are the things that we do together, the things that we must do together, the things that can only happen together? Biblical community, or the idea that we grow better together, that's how we say it around here, is a foundational truth. You know, there are some things in the Christian life that you can do by yourself. You can pray. You can have a quiet time. You can go share the gospel with a friend. You can obey the commands of God. But there are some things that you can only do together. You can't be a family by yourself. It takes at least two people to be a family. You can't sing a duet by yourself. It takes at least two, no matter how hard you try. You can't be hugged by yourself. You can't give someone a high five. Now, there is the joke of the homeschool five, but it doesn't really count. I can make that joke because my kids are homeschooled. It takes at least two. In the same way, you cannot be the church by yourself. It takes a group. You cannot be in biblical community by yourself. It takes a group. You cannot be actively engaged in the life of the body of Christ, the church, and all God has called you to be by yourself. Not because you're not strong enough or committed enough or disciplined enough. You can't do it because by its very nature it requires multiple people. A core value of our church is that we believe we grow better together. Because while we should be having individual time with the Lord, uh, alone with the Lord, we, we believe that it 
growth happens best in the context of community, the context of the church, of the local church, of our eternal family. We grow best that way, but it's also because we're precisely created for that, to be together. So in a nutshell, here is what I want you to take home this morning. And I I forgot to put this in your worship guide, so you got to write this down. Healthy Christians are members of a church where they actively participate in the communal life of the church. This is what we want for you in a very simple statement. Healthy Christians are members of a church where they actively participate in the communal life of the church. So the question we're going to answer this morning is what does that communal life look like? What does it mean to be actively participating in the church community? We're going to read the third paragraph of our proposed church covenant and dive into the unique things that we should be doing in the life of the church. And there are going to be four things I want you to take notice of. So here is paragraph three of our proposed covenant. Believing that we grow better together, we will gather together corporately for worship and will support and treasure the biblical preaching of the whole counsel of God. We will participate in biblical community through regular groups and classes at Fellowship Baptist Church. We will practice the faithful observance of baptism and the Lord's Supper and the loving exercise of church discipline. Okay, so the first and most basic thing we do together, and I would even say what is often the, 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 the first thing, the, the front door, but also the thing we never get past, never get over, never quit, is we regularly gather as the church. We regularly gather together as what we're doing right now. You know, every generation has its own set of problems. Every generation has its own set of controversies. Every generation has its own things that they kind of got to think through that they're new. And I think this is kind of a helpful paradigm. Um, When you're thinking through things, like it's often like, hey, we either need to completely reject this thing as bad Or we can say, hey, we can modify it because it's acceptable. We can kind of redeem it. Or we can accept something as good. You know, it wasn't too long ago that the church had a question around music. That the church had a question around worship music. You know, can we sing things that aren't the Psalms? There's a big controversy in the church. Not from 500 years ago. Can we sing things that other people wrote and not that God himself wrote? And then more in recent history, we had a controversy over, can we sing things that aren't hymns? Can we sing things that are to drums and modern and and new? And that was a challenge that the church across the world had to wrestle with and had to think through. And the age of the internet has brought new challenges, new things to think through, new things to wrestle with, like the nature of live streaming a church service. Is watching a live stream of a church the same or just as good as showing up and being there in person? You know, I know many churches, even large churches, who in order to serve their people have actually stopped live streaming because watching church and being at church are not the same thing. You know, I think live stream is helpful. I think when you're sick, when you're on vacation, when you just physically cannot be here, I think it is a great tool. But it is by no means a substitute for gathering with the local church. Watching church is by definition not gathering. (laughs) And it is gathering physically together that God has commanded us to do and for good reason. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, the author says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, 
but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How do you stir up people to love and good works when you're neglecting to meet together, when you're just watching? Because watching is just information intake. But gathering together at the church is more than just gathering information. It is gathering together to love and stir one another up to good works. And God has commanded us not to neglect the meeting together, as is the habit of some. Gathering together as the church regularly is not something we should consider doing as Christians. It should be something we see as a non-negotiable. Our king commands us to gather. But why? why? Why does he command us to gather? Well, I could give you a 25-point sermon as to all the reasons we should gather together for the church. But we don't have time for that. So I'm going to give you four quick reasons. Four quick reasons as to why it is vital for us to, to gather for the church. Number one, or A, we gather to be a visual reminder to the world that Jesus is king. We gather to be a visual reminder to the world that Jesus is king. Uh, I want to tell you the story. There was a, there was a foreign government uh, that I, I will mention that started growing concerned about a certain extremist movement beginning to kind of get organized on their soil. And it started because an informant had come to his commanding officer saying, hey, man, there's this group. They're kind of extreme. You know, they say kind of crazy things like their allegiance doesn't belong with the empire or with our king, uh, but rather to their own king and the, this, their own kingdom. They begin to prioritize their own people so much that they call each other family and brothers and sisters, even though they're not related. And the commander looked at this man and he says, well, you know, some people are just weird. Some people are just kind of crazy. Nothing to be concerned about. But then the informant says, oh, no, you don't get it. Yeah, these people are crazy, but they're organized. You see, they get together every week, sometimes multiple times a week. He, and he shows on a map with red pins all the places where they have begun to meet. And the, the pins are growing and spreading. The cell groups are, are forming and multiplying and making new ones. And all of a sudden, the commander sees it, a growing army. A self-organized movement that is spreading the propaganda of its movement, showing other people their book and their beliefs, getting other people to believe those things. And not only are they meeting, but they're training and they're mobilizing and they're sending others out to recruit more so they can train more and send more people out. And the red pins on the map grow and grow and grow. And the commander has only one response. Send the police, break up these gatherings, break up these meetings, make a law forbidding these people to gather. Because if we stop their gatherings, they can't train, they can't mobilize, they can't grow, and it will die out. This is not a made-up scenario. This is exactly what it looks like for, for governments around the world like China and Morocco and in the countries in the Middle East, what they have done as they have begun to see Christians begin to gather and make churches. It is not seen in the same way of when the chess club gets together. Even though they're organized and they're training people and they're sending people out to, hey, come love chess and play chess with us. But rather, the government see it as a takeover, as an insurrection, as a movement and an invasion from within. And they're right. They're right, but they don't have the whole picture. They're right that it's a movement, it's an invasion, it's an insurrection, but they don't have the whole picture. See, 2,000 years ago, God did not send his son to, to come overthrow governments. He did not send him to send the church to go be insurrectionists. But every red pen on that map, every church represents the invasion of the kingdom of God. Every church marks an outpost, an embassy who proclaims the work 
uh, and works toward the kingdom of God's advancement. Because we do believe in a different king and and that kingdom that is coming and governments that will fall. And so they send people literally today to break up. They will not let you gather. A church is illegal. Being a Christian is not, but being in a church is gathering is. Here's the point. When we gather week in and week out, proclaiming this message that Jesus is king and that we are members of that kingdom and that that king is coming to establish his, his reign forever, we are a reminder to the watching world that they should take an account, that they should take account and must decide who this day they will serve. Imagine if all of a sudden everyone in our country just decided to stay home and watch church online. Imagine if one day soon we all got virtual reality helmets and just digitally, virtually met in church from the comfort of our couches. Imagine that there were no more church traffic on Sunday. Imagine that there were no more buildings with steeples on them. Imagine that there were no more kids not making the ball games because they had to be at church. Then the world will no longer be confronted with the reality that they've chosen not to side with the king and the coming kingdom. And they would have to make a choice again and again as they see every Sunday us gather day in, week in, week out. And they would have to face their rejection of that king every day. And if we stop meeting, all of a sudden they could just ignore it. All of a sudden they could just not see it. You see, guys, just our gathering together is a political statement. It is a proclamation that we have a king and a kingdom who is coming soon. And so everyone else must choose this day who they will serve. The second thing I want us to see about why we are commanded to gather, B, is we gather to identify the citizens of Christ's kingdom. We gather that we might identify the citizens of Christ's kingdom. Who is truly a follower of Jesus? Who really is a Christian? And how can anyone know if you are or you aren't? Who gets to define it? Who affirms it? Who identifies and proclaims it? And who also says, no, you're not one? Well, the church has been given that task. Jesus gave to Peter and then to the disciples and then by extension the church the task when he said in Matthew, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now let me be clear. Let me be crystal clear. The church can never make anyone a Christian. I do not have the power to confer upon you the title of disciple of Jesus or Savior. I can't do it. By the same token, the church cannot take away or remove your salvation. But it is our job to identify, to see, to call out and to mark those who have truly been born again into Christ. When we make someone a member of our church, we are not just allowing them to join our club or to join our group. What we are saying when you become a member is based on the evidence of your testimony of your conversion, based on the fruit of your life, we believe you to be genuinely converted, to genuinely believe and be born again uh, into Christ. And so we will grant you membership into this body on earth because we believe you are already a member of of God's family in heaven. And we are reflecting what is true of you eternally. You see, with church membership comes a level of assurance Because, you know, assurance of your salvation, because it's not just you, 
examining your own heart, examining your own life and saying, well, I think I'm saved because of, because of I believe these certain things and I'll kind of look at my life. You're biased. And you might be misinformed. And so instead, the church can come alongside of you and confirm, yes, yes, you believe the right things. Yes, your life has borne fruit as a testimony to your genuine faith. And by all accounts and by all evidence, you have the markings of a true, genuine believer. And so in the seasons of doubt in your life, you can look and go, you know what? I've got these other people in my life. The church has looked at me and said, yes. Yes, you've believed rightly. You have a clear testimony. You can clearly articulate the gospel and your life has borne fruit to your changed life. So yes, even though I'm struggling right now, I can rest on that. That it's not just me and my insight into my own life, but it's the church has told me this. So by the nature of our gathering, we are saying that most of the people, not all, but most of the people in this room, week in and week out, are Christians. And when you invite someone to church who's not a Christian, you invite them into this room, our hope is that they feel out of place. Our hope is that they feel a little weird and a little uncomfortable. And you say to me, Brent, 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 uh, don't we want them to feel welcomed and loved and wanted? Yes. We want them to feel welcome. We want them to feel loved. We want them to feel wanted. But they shouldn't come in here as unbelievers and feel comfortable. They should feel like I'm out of place because I don't believe what these people believe. I don't live like these people live. I don't belong to these people like they belong to one another. We want them to feel the difference so that it might wake them up and arouse them to say, I need to join it or reject it entirely. What we don't want them is to be kind of confused in the middle. If they can just show up and there is no different thing, it's no different than like going to your first football game, then why would they need to change? Why would they need to believe anything? They can just come to church if they want, not come if they want. Like what's the difference? We gather that we might identify who belongs to Christ and who does not. The third thing I want us to see is that we gather to be refreshed, equipped, and mobilized. We gather together so that we might be refreshed, equipped, and mobilized. In Acts chapter 2, we see the church first gathering. And Acts 2 says that they devoted themselves, the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We want to be a church that treasures the preaching of the whole counsel of God's word. We want to be a church that treasures hearing, preaching, and instruction, and learning from God's Word. Not just picking and choosing the passages we like. Not just having cute, trendy, fun little sermon series that, that, that don't really teach us. We want to treasure God's Word in our preaching. We want to be refreshed by encouraging passages, but also built up by passages that remind us of how we're to live, that remind us of the gospel, and remind us of God's faithfulness. But also we want to be equipped as we have to talk about the hard issues, that we have to think through difficult passages, that the things challenge us, step on our toes, convict us, call us to change. And we want to be reminded that we've got to mobilize, that we've got to go out and not just warm a green chair, but go live on mission Monday through Saturday. 
We spend six days a week engrossed in media coverage and social media and friend groups, co-workers. We've been inundated with information, and on Sundays, we get to be reminded again and pulled back from the pool of the world. We get to be reconditioned, uh, if you will, to the truth. I want to tell you the saddest thing to me, the saddest, most discouraging, disheartening statistic I know. And this was a statistic pre-COVID, and so I am... I am 100% sure that it is worse now, but I'm, I, I'm too scared to look it up. But the average monthly attendance to church, the average, average church monthly attendance is 1.7 times a month. The average church member goes to church 1.7 times a month. That is less than two hours, less than two hours a month where you are being shepherded away from the pool and the influences and the direction of the world and being taught and pulled toward Christ. That is simply not enough. <laughs> not enough time. The world will win. The world, man, the world beats us down. Like just normal life beats us down, right? And so we need to gather with our family to offload some of that burden and be refreshed. But also, we got to figure out, like, how do we think about, how do we, the Bible, how do we, how do we apply it to our lives? How do we wrestle through these things? And if we're not gathering, those questions won't happen. We'll just give in to the world. And if we don't gather, we won't be reminded to live on mission. We won't be equipped to live on mission. And so we'll just not live sent. We'll just go about our lives. So gathering as a church helps to form us into the person God wants us to be. The last thing I want us to see about gathering is that we gather to worship God. We gather to worship God. At the end of the day, as people who have been saved, who have been redeemed, who've been made new, we see God not just as some religious icon that we follow. We see him as the most beautiful, wonderful, amazing, loving thing in the universe. And he not only deserves our worship, we long to give it to him. And so it should be our joy to walk into this room on Sundays so that we might collectively together sing to our king and learn about our king and proclaim our devotion to our king. He deserves our time all week long, but he also deserves particular time set aside where we gather together to make much of Jesus. Guys, coming to the gathering is so important. The habit of it, merely the habit of gathering will change you. The elements in it will change you. You will grow. It will change you. But also, hear me say, if you're coming 1.7 times a month, it's not going to make but a little bit dent, a little dent. And that matters for you, and it matters even more for our children. I want to tell you another really, really sad, scary stat. Seven out of ten kids who, who are regularly in church, in youth ministry, you know, go to youth all the time, go to church all the time. Seven out of ten of them, when they go to college, will walk away from the faith. Seventy percent of our children will leave the faith that we so cherish. And we could talk all day long about why that is. But one reason is that sometimes they don't see church and gathering as a priority in our life. And, and I don't want to say this with, with riled up <laughs> vigor. I want to say this um, genuinely uh, for care for you. 
if you tell your kids that God and church are the most important things in our life, but you show them that you can have every excuse to miss church, but there are never an excuse to miss a ball game, what you tell them does not matter because they believe what you've shown them. And I come from a family, I played three sports year-round. I love sports. But if you tell them one thing but show them another, they will believe what you show them, not what you tell them. And so for the sake of the next generation, gathering is so important. Sitting under the biblical preaching of God's word, singing together, fellowshipping together, seeing this as more important than anything in the world. Because if it's not, don't come. If it's not, if the resurrection of Jesus isn't true and this isn't the the mission of God, then why are you here? But if it is and you believe it is, then let's prioritize it the way that it should be. So the first thing we got to do is we've got to gather. But the second thing we've got to do, if we really want to grow and take being a disciple of Jesus seriously, it is not enough to sit in these rows. This is the starting place. We don't ever get past it, but it's the starting place. We got to not just sit in rows. We got to sit in circles. You see, number two, we intentionally participate in small groups that we might grow as disciples. We intentionally participate in small groups to grow as disciples. We got to get in circles. A core value of our church, we grow better together. And that is our value because it is a biblical value. Guys, think about the, all the verses in the Bible, right? Iron sharpens iron. A cord of three strands, not easily broken. The idea that God is a trinity. He, in his very being, is community. And so we're created in the image of community. We're desperate for it. Shoot, when God came to earth, the first thing Jesus did was make a small group of 12 guys. Things happen in circles, in small groups that can't happen in rows. In circles, we can discuss back and forth hard topics. We can push on one another and think through and wrestle and chew on things that we don't quite understand. In circles, we can talk about life and the the struggles we're having and the temptations we're having and the the sin that has ensnared us and and, and, and the struggles in our marriage and with our kids and at home and at work and, and and how we're trying to apply the Bible to those things where we're struggling. And in those circles, people can know those things, see you, love you, pray for you, help you, walk with you, hold you accountable, wrestle with you. And I think... That the best, not it doesn't have to be, I think the best small groups are multi-generational. We like all the time to talk about how, you know, we want to be with people in our same life stage. And I get that. I truly get that. But I want you to think about it. When you pull a bunch of people in the same life stage in the same group, it's just pulled ignorance. You're all in the same stage. You don't know what the next stage is like. But when you're in a multi-generational group, You've got someone who's already been where you are, and they can say, hey, man, I know it's tough, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and let me give you some wisdom, some things I've learned. And then when you've got someone below you, you can say, hey, man, I know that's tough. I've been there. Let me give you some things that I've learned. And we're all pulling each other. One's pulling you, and you're pulling someone else. I think that's the best. We need, we need that. We need circles, and we need to, to know what it looks like to bear with one another in love, to stir up one another, to love and good works, to hold each other accountable, to be a community together. Some people come to church sometimes, and they'll come to church for six months and go, well, you know, I just I don't like that church. No one ever reached out to me. No one ever, I didn't get to know anybody. Yes, because you just came and sat in a row and looked forward the whole time. You've got to get into a circle where you can see somebody and talk to them. 
Think about it this way. In the past two years, we have tried to plant a garden at my home. I built these two giant raised beds, and we put them off in the corner of our backyard, which happens to be the most shadiest area of our backyard. And so that means that some things have done really well, and some things have really not done very well. Uh, so, like, you know, uh, I put a blueberry bush back there that I transplanted from my mom, and it's big, and it gets green, and it looks healthy. No blueberries. I planted potatoes this year. Y'all, I love potatoes. I was pumped. I dug these things up. Eh, no potatoes. They're all, they're all jacked up. Not work. This big. Who can eat a potato this big? Not me. I don't even want the McAllister potatoes. You know what I'm talking about? It's really two potatoes, but cucumbers did okay. You know, some things did well, some didn't do well. Some things need this soil, some things not that soil. So, you know, my mom's like, you know, you need to pour coffee grounds on that blueberry bush. What? <laughs> coffee grounds don't just happen naturally in the world, and blueberry bushes grow places, okay? <laughs> and so it's like things need different soil, different sunlight, shade, whatever. But they grow different in different environments. And for followers of Jesus, we know what the best soil and environment to produce the best growth is, and it is small group biblical community. Guys, you can grow by yourself, there's no doubt. But you're going to grow like my green beans. A little bit here, a little bit there. Like, you're going to grow sporadically and not great. But if you want to thrive, grow deep, grow mature as a follower of Jesus, you got to get in a circle. you got to get in a small group. Because the soil of small groups produces growth in your knowledge, and your obedience to God, and in relationship with one another. That's kind of the way I'm trying to sum up all of the Christian life group in three words. In small groups, you will learn through conversation, through wrestling, which you can't just learn in a sermon. You will be spurred on to obedience and faithfulness toward Jesus and to repent of specific sins, to confess sin, to live on mission, to serve, to use your gifts, to actually follow Jesus in all of your life in a way that you can't if you're just in this row. You'll grow in relationship. You'll learn what it actually looks like to love and serve and honor and forgive and to bear with people. I love the Bible says, you know, bear with one another. That just means to put up with one another, right? In small groups, you learn to put up with some difficult people. Small groups just aren't about the head. They are about the head, but they're about the head, the heart, and the hands, helping us become fully mature followers of Jesus. So let me be clear. Sometimes we want that, and we say, okay, I'm going to get in a small group, and we think that after week one, we're going to be there, we'll have arrived. But no, like it, it takes time, right? It's a journey. It's like training for a marathon. You go, you go practice the first run, and then you go do a second run, and you don't see much improvement on your time. But if you've been run for a month, you're going to see great improvement on your time. You run for a year, you're going to see a lot of improvement on your time. And so if we go to small groups and we look back in the, over six months, eight months, a year, you're going to see, man, I have grown in ways I never thought I could. The best thing for you is to be intentionally engaged in a small group. But you have to make time for it. You have to make the commitment to show up. And if you do, it will change your life. So healthy covenant members are a part of the life of the church through gathering together as a church, through gathering in small groups. But also I want you to notice that there are some things we do even as we gather that we only do together. So number three, we practice the ordinances corporately to celebrate the gospel. We practice the ordinances corporately to celebrate the gospel. Now some of you are like, what on, what on earth is an ordinance? It's kind of a weird big word. We have two celebrations, two practices uh, given to us by Jesus uh, that remind us of the gospel, that, t- that, that, that sanctify us, that keep our focus on the gospel, that build us up. 
that give us a way to celebrate God and the work of Jesus. Uh, That is baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, some of you may not realize this, or maybe some of you were brought up in a different tradition or a different thinking about this, but baptism and the Lord's Supper should normally be practiced in the context of the church. There are exceptions, but the normal practice is we do this together. The Lord's Supper should not be done in private, on your own. It should not be done in your Bible study. It shouldn't be done in your wedding. Paul in 1 Corinthians is given instructions on how we take the supper, and he reminds us that just as we eat from one loaf, we are one body. It's one loaf, right? You can't be at home and, like, have this loaf over here. In the context of this of 1 Corinthians, some of the people were showing up to church, and they were so hungry that they just started eating the Lord's Supper before everybody got there. Like, I'm starving, man. Give me some of that bread. And Paul instructs them saying, in verse 33, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And he goes on to say, look, if you're hungry, eat at home, and then come take the supper together. The Lord's Supper is not just a gospel reminder that we eat. The Lord's Supper is a covenant sign that we receive communally. Like Noah's rainbow or Abraham's circumcision, the Lord's Supper is a sign and a seal marking us as belonging to the family of God continually. And as we have already talked about, it is membership in the church. Other people look at us and confirmed in us our salvation, our testimony, the fruit of our life. And so when the church gives us the Lord's Supper, it is a reminder that others have affirmed in me that my salvation is genuine. And that is why when we take the Lord's Supper, we do what is called fencing the table. I try really, really hard to say, hey, man, if you are not a Christian, this meal is not for you. And, and, you know, we try to talk about, hey, man, if you're a kid and you've not been baptized, this meal is not for you. And what we do is incredibly light compared to historically what the church has done. Many churches in the past would only allow their members to take the Lord's Supper because that was the only way to... truly fence the table to ensuring that no one that they did not think was a believer would take it. Because the Bible warns us if we take it in an unworthy manner, we drink wrath upon our heads. The Lord's Supper is weighty. It is important. It gives us assurance. It preaches the gospel to us. It reminds us of the gospel. It reminds us that we do not walk this path alone. We walk it together because we're one body. And that just as I needed the blood, so did the people beside me need the blood and people in the back needed the blood. And we drink it and take it together. In much the same way, baptism is not a private event. Baptism is our public declaration that we belong to God and that Jesus is our Lord. In many ways, you go to different parts of the world. It is in the moment of their baptism that their family rejects them. They've come to know and trust Christ. But when they publicly declare in front of the whole community that they belong to Jesus, it's in that moment that the Father says, you are no son of mine. Because the baptism is the declaration of who you are. And it is a covenant sign. It is a covenant sign that we receive marking us as children of God. And so baptism should be public. But but it also is given to you by someone else. You can't baptize yourself. Someone has to look at you and confirm that your faith is genuine. And so when we baptize someone here, it is only after we have met, sometimes on multiple occasions, confirming your understanding of the gospel and your conversion that you've been born again. Baptism marks you as a child of God. And so it's not the pastor 
who baptizes people. It's the church. It is our church who grants baptism to people. And that's why we allow other people to baptize. That's why we, it doesn't matter who baptizes as long as they're an agent of our church. You know, given the authority to do that by our church to baptize that person because it's the church who baptizes. Now, there are exceptions to, you know, this normal practice. You know, you think of Philip baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch, but he was an apostle, right? So we're going to give a little grace to the apostle. But now as a church is established, the normal practice is that we do this together and celebrate it together. Part of covenanting together as a church is that we get to do these things together. Like that it is, a, it is a thing we cherish that we get to do together because these are church things. We don't just go home and grab some saltines and a grape Gatorade and say, hey, I'm going to take the Lord's Supper. I'm feeling a little not holy today, so I want to get closer to the Lord. Hand me that, hand me that riptide rush. We ain't got saltines. All oh, the goldfish will do. Give me one of them. We don't do that. We don't do that. Just like we don't uh, baptize in bathtubs and homes because this is a sacred thing done in the context of the local church for the reminding of and celebrating of the work of God in the gospel. This is our thing that we do together and it is to the togetherness that makes it unique and special for us. So being involved in the life of the church means that we gather together corporately for worship. It means that we gather in small groups and it means we participate in practicing the ordinances. But finally... It also means we practice the loving exercise of church discipline. Point four, we hold one another accountable for the caring of individuals and the purity of the church. Many of you hear this word, church discipline, and it puts a bad taste in your mouth. And for some of you, it, it rightly, it rightly has, should give a bad taste in your mouth. I can tell you stories of churches who have, who have made a mockery of this idea of bringing pregnant teenager, teenage girls up on a stage and making them apologize to the church or uh, kicking a woman out because she wore pants too many times to church or something. And that's not what we're talking about here. We are talking, we're not talking about embarrassing people. We're not kicking them out and saying, don't ever come back. When we're talking about church discipline, we are talking about a process that we are compelled to take because we love people and we care for people. Galatians 6.1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now we are commanded to hold one another accountable. We see it here and all over the place. But we do it with gentleness. Right, if someone is caught in a sin, and notice that key word caught, this isn't just like they sinned one time, because if so, that would be all of us every day. But it's caught in a sin. That means it's, the sin has its clutches in them. It's an unrepentance, ongoing sin. And what happens is we go to that person and we remind them that there is forgiveness available in the gospel. And that they've died to sin so they shouldn't live in it. So turn away from this thing that's destroying your life and turn back to Christ. Repent of this thing. And when we do that, we don't walk with a swagger. We walk with a limp. When we do that, we don't walk with a swagger, acting like we are the people who got it all together and our stuff doesn't stink. But rather, we walk with a limp, knowing exactly what it's like to be in besetting sin, claws of sin in us and holding us. And so we go out of love and gentleness saying, hey, man, I've been there. Get out before it gets you. 
The Bible gives us a, a plan of action when this happens. In Matthew chapter 18, it lays out this process. Right? Matthew 18 says, hey, when someone is caught in an unrepentant sin, meaning they're ongoing, living this lifestyle of this sin, when they're not stopping, not repenting. Not like, hey, man, I got drunk and I felt, I felt guilty of it. I confessed it to God and, and I need help stopping. Great. We're not, we're not even, we're, it's awesome. We're talking about the guy who's like, hey, man, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get drunk and I'm just going to keep doing it. I'm going to cheat on my wife and I'm just going to keep doing it. I'm just going to keep doing it. That person, Matthew 18 says, you go to them and you call them to repentance. You call them to repentance. And if they say no, Matthew 18 says, you, you take multiple people. And if, and if they still don't listen to you, you go again with a bigger group. And if eventually after going to them again and again and again and again, six, eight months, a year, you've gone to them, you've pleaded with them. Then at the end of Matthew 18 and verse 17 it says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let him be as an unbeliever to you. You see, church discipline is not giving up on someone. It's changing tactics. Church discipline isn't saying, hey, we're kicking you out. Don't ever come back here. No, church discipline is saying, hey, we are removing your membership because we actually don't think you're a Christian. And we're changing tactics from calling you to repentance, and now we're going to start sharing the gospel with you. Now we're going to call you to faith, call you to belief. We're going to treat them like they're lost because they've acted so much like they're lost that the most loving thing for us to do is to treat them that way. This is the hardest thing in the world to do. The thought of this makes me want to throw up. But it is the most loving thing to do. For one, it's loving because the sin the person is stuck in is most likely ruining their life. And two, it is better that they be mad at us for calling them to repent. Be mad at us for a little while, then they go to hell and look back and go, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me you didn't think I was a Christian by the way my life and the lack of fruit in my life appeared? Let's never let someone go to hell, look back and say, my church didn't tell me. They didn't warn me. Rather than be mad at us for calling them to holiness and calling them to repentance, to be de- put sin to death. So the primary reason for, the ch- for ch- doing church discipline is the care of members' souls who by their life over the long haul have shown that there's no fruit or no fruit of repentance, and so in love we treat them like an unbeliever. That's the, the, the primary purpose. The secondary reason is that we do church discipline is for the purity of the church. Not only is the church the bride of Christ and therefore should actually belong to him, but the reputation and the witness of the church is at stake. We are called to be holy as the Lord is holy. When the world sees us, they should see that we're different. Not perfect, but different. And if we excuse or permit or, God forbid, celebrate open rebellion, open sin against God, it destroys the testimony that that church has and could have. Jesus died to remove our sin. He died to make us pure and beautiful and lovely and holy. And as Paul writes in Romans 6, we have died to sin, how can we still live in it? So some of these things may seem weighty to you. Maybe you have viewed the church as a thing that you just show up to, hang out for a little bit, do some things, and and move on with life. But the church is more than a club. 
It is more a thing we do together. It is a family by which we covenant together for the sake of faithfully living out the Christian life together, advancing the mission of Christ together, following the commands of God together. Because a church isn't a Bible study. It isn't a worship service. The church is a covenant community. A community of brothers and sisters who come together to do what we can only do together. We are the church. A bunch of misfits. Sinners, broken vessels, made whole, made holy, made pure through the blood of Christ, bonded together as family and covenant one another. And so we fall down, another picks us up. We gather, we grow, we give, we go, and we do all of this not in isolation, not by ourselves. We do it together because that's what the church is, the gathering, the called out ones who come and do these things together, what we can only do together. So let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we're thinking about the church and what the church means and is and some of us haven't thought about these things before. And there are, there are some of you in this room and you are not members because you are not a believer. And this morning I want to call you to faith, to come and trust in Christ and to believe. There are some of you in this room this morning and you are not members because there is something holding you back. Uh, maybe you're like me and you were baptized in a different tradition as a baby and you need to be baptized as immersion. Maybe there's some procedure or some fear, some hurdle holding you back. Let's walk through that together so that we can be a covenant family. Some of you are not members uh, because you just didn't see the point. You didn't understand why. Why even do that? But now you're beginning to see the point. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, come and believe as we sing the song. Let me lead you. Let me talk to you about what that means. If you're here this morning and you, you want to be a member of this church, come up. Come after the service. Come tell me. Say, Brent, I want to talk about what it means to join. Let's do that. Let's join our family fully, covenanted together. Father, give us the strength to, to think through this and to know how we should respond whether this is the church for us that we should join or whether we're already members and we need to, to think on it deeper and take it more seriously. Father, these are weighty things. To, to discipline someone for unrepentant sin is a weighty, scary, hard thing. To gather together and to make our gathering so important that we miss out on other things in life is a hard thing. Not easy. Giving up time to be in a small group, not easy. But God, would you help us to commit to doing them? Because you've commanded us to. Because they're for our good. And you only give us things for our good. Father, we love you so much. We love you in Christ and we pray all people said. Let's stand together.